0: Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe you can achieve, welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I and a few guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. And today, I am joined by Arthur B. Blozer. You know, we see it on the news a lot. We hear about dictatorships all over the world and what people have to go to. Well, today I am joined by a real life person who actually went through a dictatorship. So we're going to be talking to B about that and about the smallpox eradication program and her book and any and everything else that she wants to talk about. So Listeners got a great show lined up for you. B, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Curtis. I really appreciate your having me on.
0: Well, why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay. Well, I am a, an author and a public speaker and, and and a retired speech language pathologist. I retired eight years ago after. Uh, the passing of my husband of 53 years, and um, I started writing a book about our uh, a major portion of our life, or a very significant portion of our lives. And I have um, I am living in California now, and I have two terrific children and uh, one beautiful, very talented granddaughter. And I, um, I love sharing stories that I feel are important for today. And so uh, that's, that's what I focus on these days.
0: Well, kind of talk about the dictatorship that you lived under. Tell us how you got to that point and, and, and how you got in that and, and how you survived that and what you and your family experienced going through that.
1: Okay. We, um, well, I grew up in Oklahoma and a lot of other Oklahoma girls wanted to go to Dallas. I wanted to go to Africa. I always wanted to go to Africa. I had this film strip inspired vision of what that would be like. And uh, uh, when I had j- just graduated from college, I met a guy on a blind date. His name was Carl Bloser. And he didn't wait past the second date to tell me that his dream was to work in medical missions. And he rightly assessed that we were kindred spirits we married six months later well his uh, his field was uh, global health and we worked here in the states on reservations and uh, various uh, places with the pueblo groups and so on We had to wait nine years before there was an opportunity to go overseas. And then uh, CDC called and they were looking for people to go to West Africa in the smallpox eradication measles control program. And so it was like a dream come true. We moved first to Northern Nigeria in that program. And by the way, let me just say that this, a successful campaign to uh, totally wipe smallpox off the face of the earth as the only human disease that has ever been globally eradicated. Um, but we were in what, Northern Nigeria for eight months and then were transferred to Equatorial Guinea. So we went from the kind of the edge of the Sahara to the rainforest and a tropical island that was a, it could have been a gorgeous Hollywood set and it concealed all of the murder and torture that were being dished out at the hands of the dictator. Nigeria, this whole period was this early post-colonial time and Nigeria had been independent from Britain 10 years at that point. Equatorial Guinea had been independent only 18 months. The, let me, before I tell you how this dictator came to power and the things that permitted him to win the presidency, let me just first give you a quick glimpse of some of the things we observed on arrival. And those included very grim situation at the airport arriving arriving there nobody smiled uh, soldiers Guardia nacional with their rifles and fixed bayonets were everywhere uh, the streets were in unlike any other place in Africa where you have just so many gorgeous, Fabulous sounds of life, color and, and music, uh, singing, shouting, sounds of traffic, all of this. The streets in Equatorial Guinea, uh, and there is a tiny country and a tiny capital city, uh, just just eerily silent, almost empty streets. And I would later learn that. They had been the streets had been emptied by just abject fear. The we were not allowed to speak to a local person. No, the president had decreed that no Guinean could have any contact whatsoever, not even to say hello or basically make eye contact on the streets uh, with any foreigner. And the second day there we were on a tour of city hall with the ambassador, our, our ambassador and uh, my husband and I and and another diplomat and the mayor was giving us a tour of city hall and about 20 minutes or so into the tour, he, uh, somebody came to the door and called him to the door and he stepped back in and he said, "Uh, excuse me, I've, I have to leave, he left for about five or 10 minutes, came back and said, I am very sorry. I cannot continue your tour. The president has just fired me. Um, uh, The diplomats told us that he he probably had insulted the president in some way, would be severely beaten, maybe thrown into Black Beach prison, one of the worst in the world. Um, and then um, a couple of weeks later, a month later, when our household shipment arrived, seven soldiers crowded into our living room with their rifles and fixed bayonets, thrusting their rusty bayonets into all our belongings as we unpacked. So those were, those are some of the things that were, that had happened in the somewhat early days of this president's reign. <laughs> um, so, you know, you think, well, how on earth did somebody like that get power? How, how do dictators come to power? And I think that there are a lot of comparisons that we can draw with the rise of authoritarianism today. Uh, in looking at some of the factors that allowed this man to to win the first presidential election, the he was he was really not very educated. He wasn't very smart at all, and nobody, uh, none of the analysts or uh, people who knew much about. Elections and so on, thought that he had a chance of winning. There was just no way he would win this election, or to become the first president of this independent country. And uh, but he did. He um, he had no real skill, but he was very crafty, and he he, would his oratory was, uh, had people just. Spellbound, I guess he was. Uh, he was loud. He was bombastic. He um, he praised Hitler. He uh, uh, that's a side thing. That's not one of the things that attracted people to him. I, I'm sure. Uh, but he was anti-intellectual. Uh, like educated people were the enemy, and and certainly then. Obviously, one of the major things was the colonial power. They uh, with, this was uh, a former colony of Spain. And uh, we're talking about Francos Spain. So uh, they had the people had been treated very severely. And obviously, you know, being anti-colonial uh, and anti-Spanish, was a, a huge draw not that not that the other candidates weren't anti-spanish, but this this man was just uh, angrily and rabidly um, promising to get rid of every single vestige of this of Spain and return everybody to the old ways to the to their tribal ways and so on and also promised them that, everything was going to be great. And uh, it's almost like everybody was going to have a mansion. So um, he, um, and I think he he tapped into their yearning for identity. Um, you know, people who are so uh, subjugated, where is their identity, you know? And, and so he promised that they were going to be Returned to their tribal identities and so on, and um, and er, uh, you know really uh, capitalized on the an us versus them theme, and so um, and you know I think the people were very susceptible to that. They had had no control of their lives and. They, um, the colonialists were getting wealthy off their resources and their labor, and obviously, um, you know, freedom-I mean, freedom was brand new. And, and, um, with his, uh, with Macias, this was I didn't even say his name, it was um, uh, Francisco Macias Nguema, and. Uh, Macias had um, you know promised to get rid of every single vestige of, of the Spanish. Well, um, so that sounded very attractive. But what happened was then uh, you know he, he did win the first presidency, uh, the first presidential election. And as some people later said, some, one of the Guinean people told a, a political scientist who was uh, writing and doing some research. And he said, you know, most people didn't know what a vote was. And now they would never need to know. He he was able to win the first election and then promptly began by killing off the people who had run against him in, in that election, and then killing off leaders of any other political party. And then talking about he wanted was gonna promise to return them to their tribal ways. Well, then he's, he started murdering the uh, tribal chiefs and Um, anyone who he thought might have some influence over people. And he not only would murder these people, but he would murder their families. So that's for starters, Curtis. (laughs) I should pause and let you (laughs) redirect me or uh, or, uh, tell me to proceed.
0: Well, let's talk about why. Soldiers just to arrest your six-year-old son.
1: Ah, <laughs> yes, that, um, that happened toward the end of our time there. Um, by that time, uh, our children were so young. Our, our son was four and our daughter was 18 months when we moved to West Africa. And the, um, in Equatorial Guinea, Uh, by the time this happened, yeah, he, he was six. And he was in our front yard and making some little bows and arrows with bent twigs and rubber bands. And he shot one of these toward a soldier that was walking past the house. And we're talking about a little... Twig, basically, you know, a few inches long. And, um, and then they rushed into the yard, tried to, tried to grab him, wanted to uh, arrest him, take him off to prison. They said he was making weapons dangerous to the Republic of Equatorial Guinea. And um, after that point, the children and I were evacuated out and lived in Cameroon by ourselves for four months while Carl finished up his smallpox program on the island. And for the most part, we were safe there, but um, Messias's people suffered just untold horrors. Um, You know, if he was felt insulted, um, it, it could be torture, there
0: well what resistance did, did you actually face d- during your time there and 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 from who who was the resistance coming from
1: we didn't have resistance for the smallpox program and back in uh in nigeria and this was common in many areas of west africa the, anytime we would drive down the road in the smallpox trucks, people would rush toward the road and uh, shout their salutes and their gratitude. And, and uh, uh, in northern Nigeria, in the Hausa language, they would shout, ranka Didi," And that means, may you live long. Uh, prior to our program, you know, they they knew that because because the big white drugs came with the vaccine that no longer did a third of their family die. Uh, a third of people who caught smallpox died and many who survived were left horribly disfigured and blinded. So there was just gratitude Um the resistance in some parts of Nigeria and some of the other countries came mainly from the witch doctors. And the fact that, you know, uh, that was going to cost them influence and income if smallpox was eradicated. And they often threatened people uh, by telling them if they got vaccinated, they were going to spread smallpox. And, uh, and people believed, uh, the people who believed in them believed that they could either cure smallpox or or cause it. So um, so they were the spreaders of disinformation. Uh, in Equatorial Guinea, the smallpox program did not face resistance um, because Macias did want the... PR factor, he felt it looked good on him if uh, the the smallpox program was there. So my husband was able to do his work, even though it was hard to get information that he needed at times, and, and there were operational things that were challenges coming from that government. Of challenges in general were the uh, resistance to just our presence. I guess uh, there would be spies outside our homes and offices, and they recorded the names of everybody who came to your house for dinner. They or they recorded who came, who went, then where they found out, trailed people, find out where they went, reported where they went later. So it was um, a challenge to get people to even come to the home of somebody who was affiliated with an embassy because um, they didn't want to be reported on to the government. We had also, we had had Oh, there was, like I said, it was a tiny capital, about a one square mile capital city and nine embassies and diplomatic missions there because of the st- very strategic location of that country. And um, so our social contacts talk about a, a bubble back at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when they, everyone had this isolation bubble and uh, there we were dictated who could be in our, our social bubble. Uh, initially, we had had about 25 possible contacts, uh, people with friendly embassies and the UN advisors who were there to help out. And then one day Messias decided, "Hmm, it's a threat to me to allow these embassy people to talk to UN people because one of them knows too much and they might tell the other one. So from that day forward, we could no longer even speak to the friends we had made with the UN. Um, So our little bubble shrunk to about 12, or 15 people. Uh, They also... um, diplomats could not have more than seven people for dinner without getting Macias's personal permission, signed permission and so on. And so it was, um, but the, the people there, um, by the time Macias was overthrown, nine years after being elected, he had either murdered, imprisoned or exiled a third of his population. So the, the, it was um, was sad, sad, sad place for the people, and it, it, you know, that is um, seen in far too many places, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah, t- tell everybody about your book. Tell uh, listeners what they can expect when they read it and the name of it and where they can pick it up at.
1: The name of the book is Vaccines and Bayonets Fighting Smallpox in Africa Amid Tribalism, Terror, and the Cold War. It's available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook. It's available on, with most online booksellers. And um, the, it's, um, it's a historical memoir. It's based on a lot of documentation. People ask how I could write with such detail about things that happened 50 years ago. Well, after my husband passed away and I was going through his filing cabinets this entire file drawer of papers, letters, cables, you name it just so much from our days in Equatorial Guinea. And that's when I decided I have to write this book. So it is a, a memoir about our involvement with the smallpox eradication program. And, and, um, and the subtitle pretty much says it all. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, by the way, uh, uh, a few weeks ago, it was named a finalist in the Indie Book Awards in the category Historical Nonfiction. And of course, I'm thrilled about that. And uh, it's, um, you know, it covers a lot about public health, global health uh the tripwires of international service. And I often, um, based on the book and the topics I speak about, I often talk to university classes and kind of help prepare people who are preparing to go overseas, as well as just make pe- making people aware, seeing comparisons of what happened then and why it matters now.
0: Well, talk about some of the myths that you can say th- that are not true when, when representing America.
1: Oh, <laughs> um, yes, a lot of people think that uh, that sounds pretty glamorous to uh, you know represent our country abroad, and I have, I thought so. <laughs> when we were getting ready to go, I was reviewing the uh, protocol guide we've been given and reading about representation of the United States of America, and that just sounded so grand. And I was picturing myself having poised and perceptive conversations with <laughs> the with, uh, diplomats and uh, at fancy, uh, embassy receptions and uh, so on. Well, <laughs> that is, uh, uh, some of that takes place for some people, um, but I wasn't prepared for some of the risks that we wound up facing, things that I guess people who are actually foreign service officers are more prepared for and uh, deal with uh, as part of the job but I didn't you don't think about public health people or at least in the past we didn't think about public health people facing some of these risks um but the what I began to hear uh, like the day of our unpacking when those seven sho- seven soldiers were crowded into our living room and um and um One of them shoved his rifle over against our son, who was five at that point. We were getting more and more tense, and the charge d'affaires kind of shepherded me out the back door. My husband followed close behind, slammed the door, and, you know, we were wanting him to do something to stop this. And he said, it's just part of representation. It's just part of representation. And there was another occasion, there were a couple of more occasions where uh, one night when we were sheltered in the embassy because of what was going on in the streets, and it's just part of representation. <laughs> so I found out that that word has um, a little darker meaning in that, uh, or it can have, and that representation of the United States of America abroad is... Uh, doesn't necessarily mean any glamor or uh, uh, self-importance kind of thing.
0: So tell us about the disease that Abraham Lincoln was coming down with when he delivered the Gettysburg address.
1: Yes. Thanks for, thank you for asking some of these questions, Curtis. Um, The when uh, when Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg address, he was actually infected with smallpox. He had started showing symptoms a couple of days earlier. The early symptoms of smallpox uh, can be flu-like symptoms. He was not feeling at all well when he gave that address and if his incubation period before the, the rash started, if his incubation period had just been a day or two shorter, we wouldn't have had those famous words. Um, he was immediately afterwards, he was hurried back to Washington and for 10 days, they had him uh, hidden away kind <laughs> of in his bedroom, but they canceled without telling anybody what the situation was. They canceled all cabinet meetings and so on. Everything was canceled. Um, Lincoln of course survived. And, uh, many of the pictures of him, you see with the, some scars, um, not nearly the horrible scars that many people have. And, uh, but, um, his personal valet uh, caught smallpox and died.
0: Do you have any current or upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about?
1: What I work on these days, Curtis, is trying to get the word out about, um, for speaking and sharing this story that way. And also that introduces them to the book um, I love to speak to university students and uh, nonprofits and civic groups and, uh, and other groups as well, and libraries and so on. and, and I do so by Zoom quite often. Um, but I just I feel it that there are some really important messages to, to share. Um, I also want to go back to Africa, not to Equatorial Guinea. Uh, but uh, shortly before the pandemic, I had checked with the Peace Corps and asked them what their upper age limit was. They said they didn't have one, but that the oldest person who had gone with them was 86. So I thought, okay, well, I still have a couple of years. And uh, so anyway... Uh, then, you know, the pandemic came along and so I haven't made it yet. Um, and realistically, maybe the Peace Corps with its two year commitment is not the thing for me to entertain. But I am I am looking for uh, an, some other volunteer opportunity as I do want to go back.
0: Okay, throw out your contact information. How can people stay in touch with you, keep up with you and everything that you're doing? you got any websites or any social media links? Uh, I
1: have. I do have some social media accounts. I, I don't have um, a lot on there. They're all under my name, B-Blozer, and I do have a website, and that's the best place. Um, and it is B-E-E. B-L-O-E-S-E-R.com. And uh, that's my website. I don't sell the book on the website, but there are excerpts on there and uh, links. And that has a link to all the places the uh, the book, uh, to many of the places the book can be purchased. And um, um and, so, and my social media things, too. I, I do have uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and so on.
0: Okay, close us out with some final thoughts. Maybe something that I didn't touch on that you would like to touch on, or just any final thoughts that you have for the listeners.
1: Curtis, I would. the I think the main thing I like for listeners to take away is that the the campaign we were in was just mind-blowing. It's just, don't you think it's mind-blowing that nations and individuals on opposite sides of an ideological divide could cooperate and come together to defeat the microbe, to defeat smallpox. And I think that, it, to me, it kind of comes down to the bottom line of that if we think community and think treating our neighbor the way we would like them to treat us, that we can, we can accomplish anything.
0: We most certainly can, ladies and gentlemen bblowser.com, check her out, keep up with everything that she's up to, go purchase that book, also follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible, be thankful for the freedoms that we do have, and till next time, B, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Curtis, I really enjoyed visiting with you, and thank you for the opportunity.